We are now a few weeks into 2024, and even though life may be back to its normal and busy routine, you know, the hassle of things, everything just back to the rush of life, I want us to consider, to pause and to consider right now on something that's relevant all the time, but it's particularly relevant when uh, the new year comes, because at the new year, you have an opportunity to stop and think about your life. And so I want us to stop and think about the pursuit of redeeming time, the resolve to make the most of your time in your daily life. The new year is a natural checkpoint for us to think about the opportunities we have with time and the opportunity we have even in that moment to reflect on how we spend our life and to ask the questions, am I going through life wisely? Am I doing things that have value? Or am I wasting my life? Am I doing things that don't matter? Am I uh, distracted by the things that are, that are passing while not achieving the things that are lasting? You know, when the new year comes... We think about life and we make New Year's resolutions to focus on the things that are important so that the next year will be a more fulfilling year, a year that is spent more wisely. We reflect on the past year. We look forward to the new year with new resolutions, with new determination. Now, I know, and I've spoken to some of you, that not everybody makes New Year's resolutions. And maybe you think that the resolutions are a waste of time. Maybe you're discouraged by making resolutions because you make the resolution at the beginning of the year and less than a month later, you're breaking the resolution. And so in order not to break the resolution, you just don't make the resolution and then you begin the year in, you know, on the right foot, so to say. Tony Robbins is a businessman and he wrote a book on resolutions and he said that 91% of New Year's resolutions are unfulfilled. I personally do make New Year's resolutions, I'm not saying I keep them, I'm saying I make them, right? (laughs) And often I make the same New Year's resolution the next year, and then the next year, and then the year after that. And my family knows that. And my sister sent me this image she saw online that kind of describes my life, and you can see it on the screen. This is what it says. My goal in 2024... (laughs) is to accomplish the goals I set in 2023, which I should have done in 2022 because I made a promise to do them in 2021, which I planned initially to do in 2020. And you can actually keep going back. <laughs> well, many, maybe many of us can relate to this, just the fact that it's hard to keep New Year's resolutions. But this does touch upon an important issue. How do we make the most of our time? How do we not waste our life? How do we live a life that has value? Jonathan Edwards, a very familiar name to all of us, he asked the same questions. He wanted to live his life with purpose. He wanted to live his life in light of eternity. And you all know his prayer, the famous prayer he said, O Lord, stamp eternity on my eyeballs. He wanted to live this life in such a way that it would have lasting impact. And he captured this commitment to his life 
in a journal or in a charter that he wrote for his life with 70 resolutions to govern the way that he would live his life. He was 18 or 19 years old when he wrote these, and he wrote them so that they would help him live his life with purpose, with, resol- with resolve, and with lasting impact. And this is the question I want us to raise today. How do we live a life that has lasting impact? How do we live a life that has lasting impact? And as we look to the scriptures for this, we see four principles. We see four principles to live a life that has lasting impact. First, you have to live your life in light of eternity. If you want to live a life that has lasting impact, you have to live in light of the eternity of time. We live in a world that indulges in the passing pleasures of this world And it does this because they don't believe in God, they don't believe in eternity, they don't believe in life after death. We all know this expression, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die, right? It's familiar to us. And it's even cited in the Bible to describe a pagan approach to life. But this expression has also been used throughout history to motivate non-believers to make the most of their life and to enjoy this life as much as possible. Charlie Chaplin said in one of his films, which I did not see, but I read about it, he said, one of his characters says that there, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. Shakespeare uses this line in Henry IV, where one of his characters says, let us take the good of this world, and let us eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. Way before Shakespeare, in about... 300 BC or so, uh, this even developed into a a philosophy, a way of life called Epicureanism, which says that you should enjoy this life as much as possible because this life is all you get. Epicurus, the man behind this philosophy, he said this to describe existence. He said this, I was not, I am, I am not, and I care not. In other words, I don't really care what happens before me or what happens after me. All I care about is what happens to me when I'm alive. This is the perspective of our secular world. But like I said, this idea or this statement actually goes back to the Bible. In Ecclesiastes chapter 2, Solomon said that he tested the pleasures of this world to see what good they would bring. He tested gladness and laughing. He tested wine and pleasure. He tested work and success. And in chapter 2, verse 4, he says, I built houses for myself. I planted vineyards for myself. I made for myself gardens and parks and pools of water. Then in verse 8, he says, I collected for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. And then I became great and increased more than all who preceded me in Jerusalem. And you know what his conclusion to all of this was? He says in verse 11, Behold, all was vanity. All was vanity and striving after the wind. All of the achievements, all of the pleasures, all of the riches of this world, he says, vanity. And the point that Solomon is making here is that if this world is all you get, if there is no God, if there is no eternity, then all of this, everything that we're doing here is vanity. 
Paul explains in 1 Corinthians 15, uh, 15, 32, and says that if the dead are not raised, if there is no eternity, he says, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. If this is all you get, then go for it. Make the most of your life. But Paul's whole point in chapter 15, 1 Corinthians 15, is that there is resurrection. There is eternity. That's the entire focus of chapter 15, that there is the resurrection of the dead. He says that the believers are raised in Christ to eternal life, and the unbelievers are raised to eternal damnation. Yes, we live and we die, but then comes eternity. And this is exactly what Solomon was saying in his passage as well. In Ecclesiastes 3.11, Solomon says that God has set eternity in the hearts of humans. God has set eternity in our hearts. When God breathed life into Adam, God breathed eternity into Adam. Every human will die in this world, but every soul is going to live forever. There is a heaven and there is a hell, and every life that was ever conceived is going to experience either hell or heaven forever. And as we live our lives, we must understand that the decisions we make today affect our eternity. We must live not for the sake of the passing pleasures of this world, but for the lasting glory that will come in the future world. Jonathan Edwards understood this. And that's exactly how he wanted to live. In resolution number 22, he said this, Resolved to endeavor to obtain for myself as much happiness in the other world as I possibly can with all the power, might, vigor, and vehemence, yea, violence I am capable of or can bring myself to exert in any way that can be thought of. This world says, enjoy this world as much as possible. Jonathan Edwards resolved to to obtain as much happiness as possible in the other world, in the eternal world. When we think about our life, we try to plan it out, right? We try to plan out our future. And we ask ourselves, where will I be in five years? What will I be doing in 10 years or 20 years? Well, I heard a sermon that Nathan Buznitz preached once, and he said, we must ask ourselves not only where will I be in 20 years, but where will I be in 20,000 years? Where will I be in 20 million years or 20 billion years? You're going to be around. The question is, where will you be and what will you be doing? When you think of life in this way, all of a sudden, all of the passing pleasures of this world become so insignificant. And what becomes significant, truly important, is our investment into eternity. And this applies to believers and non-believers alike. In Matthew 16, 26, Jesus said, For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? What's the point of life if you gain riches, fame, if you spend time with your friends, family, if you have a comfortable life, if at the end of this life you enter eternity and you spend the rest of eternity in hell. 
for, the, for most of us here who are believers, we can ask a similar question. What's the purpose of life if you focus all of your attention, all of your energy, all of your time, all of your gifts, all of your money on things that make your life comfortable here? And you don't use yourself maximally for the work of God. What's the purpose of these 70 or 80 years if you don't use yourself fully for the work of God? And when you die, everything that you have obtained, everything that you have worked for goes down to the grave with you. As Moses was reflecting on life, most of which he spent in the wilderness because the first 40 years he was fleeing from Egypt and then he was delivering Israel out of Egypt. But as he was reflecting on life and as he was thinking about the brevity of life, the shortness of life, and yet the eternality of God, the eternity of all of time, he wrote Psalm 90. And as he wrote this psalm, he wanted his readers to understand that we must view our life in the context of forever, in the context of eternity. He says in verses 1 and 2 of Psalm 90, Lord, you have been our dwelling place from generation to generation. So he recognizes that our life is brief. It's a generation, or maybe it's two generations, 40 years, or maybe 80 years. But then he looks beyond this life, and he said that, the, that life is bigger than us, and it reaches to thousands of years beyond us and before us to the creation of the universe. And he says, he's talking here about the time before the mountains were born, or you, God, brought forth the earth and the world. So Moses went from talking about one or two generations, 40 or 80 years, to talking about a period of about 6,000 years when the earth was created. But then he went even beyond that. And he said that eternity is the timeline we need to be thinking of. He says, even from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. So Moses goes from thinking about 40 years to thinking about 6,000 years to then thinking about eternity into the past and into the future. Moses wants us to understand that our temporary life fits into a timeline of forever. Everything you do now will be viewed by God in the context of eternity. What you do in this life will either disappear because, because it was an absolute waste of time, or it will have continual effect for eternity after this life ends and as we enter into the state, into the eternal state. And when we understand this, we realize that we don't have a minute to waste. When we understand this, we realize that we don't have a second to waste. When we see our life in the context of eternity, we see that we have so little time. And this brings us to the second principle. First, to live a life that has lasting impact, you must live in light of eternity. And second, if you want to live a life that has lasting impact, you have to live in light of the mortality of man. You have to live in light of the mortality of man. Every single one of us is going to die. Of the billions of people who had lived since the beginning of time, since Adam and Eve, every single person has died, except for Enoch and Elijah. 
God took them up when they were alive, but everybody else died. And unless God raptures us, we also will die. In 2023, just this past year, 61 million people died. That's about 170,000 people per day, 7,000 people per hour, 115 people per minute, roughly this side of the room. (laughs) And then the second minute, this side of the room. (laughs) And that's, that's just about two people every second. Every second, two people die. In this past year, as we think about people who have died, we've lost some very influential personalities in America. Tony Bennett, a famous singer, died this year. Sandra Day O'Connor, first woman in the Supreme Court, died. Rosalind Carter, the wife of Jimmy Carter, Diane Feinstein, a California senator. And I know that people in this room have lost their friends, their family members, their loved ones. My uncle passed away this past August and met Christ face to face after 70 years of life. And I have to tell you, when we were there at the funeral, 74 years just seemed so short just seems so short. But James 4.14 says this. It says, You do not know what your life will be like tomorrow. You are a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. We must live in light of the fact that each one of us is going to die. God has numbered the days of every single person sitting in this room. In Psalm 139.16, David wrote that in your book, all of them were written, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was not one of them. Even before you were born, God had already determined when you would be born. He had determined how long you would live. And he had set the day, the hour, and the minute when you will pass away. People have challenged the truth in our day in many different respects, even as insane as rejecting the fact that men are men and women are women, but it's impossible to refute the fact that everybody dies. Think about this question. What is the first thing that happens to us when we are conceived? What's the first thing that happens to us when we are conceived? I don't know if we take a breath in the womb when we're conceived. Do we take a breath? (laughs) So you guys are answers. Just to clarify, somebody said you get slapped, you start crying. No, this is before you're born. When you're conceived, <laughs> you start dying. Right? Yeah. This is before you're born. Okay. The first thing, I mean, when you're born, here's the reality: when you're born, you've already been on the path of dying for nine months, roughly. Right? But the second you're conceived, you start dying. That's the reality of life. And that's a fact that no one can dispute. That's a fact that no one can escape. And when we die, exactly when God has determined for each one of us to die. When Moses was reflecting on the death of humans and the brevity of life, he said in Psalm 90, verse 3, he said, You, God, Turn man back into dust, and you say to them, Return, O sons of men. 
In his perfect wisdom, God has given each one of us a specific number of years to work the works that he has prepared for us. And when that time comes to an end, he will say to us, return. And that will be all the time that we will get on this earth to glorify God. The length of our life and the moment of our death is determined by God. You can't extend your life by a single millisecond. After Adam sinned, God promised him or God announced the consequences of the curse of the sin, saying that dust you are and to dust you shall return. And since the beginning of time, God has been saying to billions of people, return, return to dust. If we are to live lives that have eternal significance, we must remember that our time on this earth is coming to an end on a daily basis. And we must seize every single moment to glorify God, to do the works that God has prepared for us. And as dark as it might be to think about death, to reflect on or to focus on it, Scripture calls us to keep it at the forefront of our minds. In Psalm 39, verse 4, David says, Yahweh, cause me to know my end and what is the extent of my days. Let me know how transient I am. And it would be wise for us to keep a proper perspective of death, that death is drawing near, because that will remind us not to waste our time. When we look at the resolutions of Jonathan Edwards, who again wanted to live life of significance, life of eternal impact, we see that he determined to focus on death. In resolution number nine, he says, resolved to think much on all occasions of my own dying and of the common circumstances which attend death. So in order to live life purposefully, Jonathan Edwards determined to think much of death. And Solomon affirms that thinking of death properly helps us to live purposefully. In Ecclesiastes 7, verse 2, Solomon says, It's better to go to a house of mourning than to go to a house of feasting, because that is the end of all mankind, and the living puts this in his heart. Why is it better to go to a house of mourning? Why is it better to go to a funeral? Because the funeral puts the end, the funeral puts the end of our life at the forefront of our mind. And that should affect the way that you live. When you go to a funeral, you ask the question, why do people keep dying? So God uses death as an opportunity to remind us that the wages of sin is death. We die not because it's some natural course of events or because it's some kind of a cycle of life. We die because we sinned. You go to a funeral and you face the question, what happens to people after they die? So God uses death as an opportunity to make us think of eternity and judgment after eternity. Hebrews 9.27 says that it is appointed for men to die once, and after this comes judgment. And so then you face the question, where will I spend eternity? In heaven or in hell? And this presents an opportunity 
for the gospel. It's an opportunity to declare the truth that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and that no one comes to the Father. No one enters into eternity with God except through Christ. If you're not a believer in this room, you will spend eternity in hell. If you are a believer, you will spend eternity with Christ in heaven. But for us as believers, death should also motivate us to redeem every single minute of our life, to live lives of lasting impact, knowing that our days are numbered. The fact that we die must affect the way that we live. The fact that we die must affect the way that we live. Every minute that we live, we are coming closer to our death. And we must keep this at the forefront of our minds when we choose to do something or when we choose not to do something because our days are are numbered. And this brings us to the third principle for us to live a life of lasting impact. If you want to live a life that has lasting impact, you have to live in light of the urgency of the moment. In Psalm 90 verse 12, Moses addresses God, he speaks to God, prays to God, and he says, So teach us to number our days that we may present to you a heart of wisdom. This life is complex. It's busy, it's fast-paced, it's difficult, it's full of sorrow, it's fleeting. And so when we look at this life, we can ask the question in the words of Francis Schaeffer, how shall we then live? Well, as Jonathan Edwards thought about the busyness of this life, he made a number of resolutions specifically to help him seize every single moment of his life and to help him live proactively during his life. In resolution number five, he said, Resolved, never to lose one moment of time, but to improve it in the most profitable way I possibly can. How many of us can truly say this? That we do everything in our power not to lose a single moment of time. In resolution number seven, he said, resolved never to do anything which I should be afraid to do if it were the last hour of my life. If you knew you would die tomorrow, wouldn't that change the way that you live today? If you knew that you were going to die tonight, wouldn't that change the way that you live right now? Moses understood the preciousness of every minute, and so he prayed to God, teach us to number our days. The only way that you can make the most of your days is if God is your instructor is if God is your teacher for how to live life. And Moses here is not simply telling us that we should keep in mind how long we're going to live, even though if we knew that, just like I said, it would change the way that we live. But he is calling us actually to consider every moment of our life as a -a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to do that which has eternal value. The opposite of to number your days is to waste your days. And Moses is exhorting us, do not waste your days. Or in the words of John Piper, don't waste your life. We all have 24 hours per day. 
Eight hours a day we sleep. Eight hours a day we work. And so the question is, what do we do with the remaining eight hours of every day? Or with the minutes that make up those eight hours? I think that we've all had those pivotal moments in our lives that have affected the way that we look at life, the way that we look at our days, the way that we look at discipline, our discipline of time. I'm sure all of you can remember back to a time in your life when you experienced that. I was a freshman in high school when my approach to life, when my worldview was challenged. Growing up as a kid, I loved to read. I think it's no secret. I read the kids' Bible. I read kids' biographies. I read fiction. I read the classics. When I got into junior high and high school, I began to read um, you know, other literature, Dickens, Shakespeare, etc. But I remember when I got into ninth grade at high school, I set a challenge for myself to read that massive tome by Leo Tolstoy, War and Peace. War and Peace. 1,200 pages. Every day after school, ninth grade, I would come home and I would find a comfortable chair at home and I would sit and I would read for two to three hours trying to get through that book. No, don't be impressed, okay? Not yet. (laughs) And... uh, One of the days, I came home, I sat down, found a comfortable chair, sat down, and I was reading it, and um, I remember my mom came out of the kitchen, and I remember this very clearly, because she came out of the kitchen, she had a plate in her hand, and she had a towel, and she was drying the plate, so clearly just after washing the dishes. She came up to me, and she stood there for a minute looking at me, and then she said, are you going to sit there all day and waste your life, or are you going to get a job? <laughs> 25 years have passed. I still remember this. You can see I've been traumatized for the past <laughs> 25 years. Well, she, when she posed that question to me, she was looking at something bigger than just a person reading the book. She knew that I needed to develop a work ethic. I was 15 at that time. I was able to start working um, legally. I had the work permit, and so she wanted me to develop that responsibility. And I did. The next day, I went to the career center center at high school. Uh, By the end of that week, I think it's that week or the next week, I had an interview at the Temple City Batting Cages. And then on Monday, yep, I remember that, one of my favorite jobs. Uh, I got hit by the baseball three times. That's not funny. (laughs) But as my mom asked that question, she was trying to show me that there there are more important things to do than just to read. You have to develop responsibility. And so wisdom demonstrates itself not in doing good things or bad things only, but in doing the proper things at the right time. And the proper thing at that time for me was to learn discipline, learn a work ethic, and make sure that I used my time wisely. She wanted me to understand to use my time wisely. And the question for us today is, what are we doing with our time, with every minute of the day? When we waste time, we can never get it back. You can lose money, and then you can get more money. But if you lose time, 
it's gone. You can never replenish it. Here's what Pastor John said. Outside of purposeful disobedience to God's word, the most spiritually foolish thing a Christian can do is to waste time and opportunity. So how do we use our time? And what must we do in order to use our time wisely? Moses says that the only way that you can be wise is if you number your days. He said to God, teach us to number our days that we may present to you a heart of wisdom. Notice here that wisdom comes after you number your days. First you number your days and then you have a heart of wisdom. In Ephesians chapter 5, verses 15 and 16, Paul said, Look carefully how you walk, not as unwise, but as the wise, redeeming the time because the days are evil. To live a wise life, a life that has lasting impact, you have to number your days and you have to redeem your time. The word redeem here has the idea of buying, buying something that's valuable, buying something that is precious. And Paul calls us to buy all the time that we can get because it's precious, it's valuable. And he, he says to us, buy it and use it to, the, to fulfill the work of the Lord. And understand that our goal should not be simply to live productive lives. It's not about us. Moses says that the purpose is that we may present to you, to God, a heart of wisdom. The purpose is to present our life of service to God. One day, we're all going to stand before God, and He will examine every single minute of our life. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10, Paul writes, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one of us may be recompensed for his deeds in the body, according to what he has done, whether good or or bad. Now understand that this is not a judgment of salvation for our sin, because for believers, sin has already been judged on the cross and the death and the resurrection of Christ. In Romans 8, Paul says that there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But this is a judgment of all of our works on this earth as believers. Paul makes this even more vivid In 1 Corinthians 3, verses 12 and 13, where he says that some of our works in this world are like gold and silver and precious stone. They're valuable and they have eternal significance and they will withstand the test of fire. But then he says that there are other works that are like wood, hay, or straw. They're not sinful because sin has been paid for on the cross already, but they are worthless. They're completely useless, and when, when they are put into the fire to, to be tested, they all burn up. And if our life consists of acts that are comparable to hay or straw, that means that during all of those acts, we forfeited glorifying God. When you get to the end of your life, Will God say that you lived a life that has lasting impact? Or will God examine your life and say, there is so little salvageable here. There is so little of value here. Will you get to the end of your life and say, I have lived a life for God? 
Or will you say in absolute regret, I have wasted my life? In resolution number 52, Jonathan Edwards said, I frequently hear persons in old age say how they would live if they were to live their lives over again. And then he says, resolved that I will live just so as I can think I shall wish I had done, supposing I live to old age. When he was 18 and 19 years old, he determined to live in a way that when he gets to the end of his life, he would say, I lived my life exactly as I would if I were to do this again. So the question for us today is, how can we live in such a way? How can we seize every moment? How do we not waste a single minute? There was a 16th century reformer named Philip Melanchthon. He was uh, a reformer who worked with Martin Luther to launch the Reformation. And like Edwards, this reformer Philip, he wanted to use every minute of his life for God. And to achieve this goal, he kept a record of every single minute that he wasted during his days. And then at the end of his day, he would look at that list and he would repent before God for the moments that he wasted. He was obsessed with redeeming his time. You know, we can look at people around us and we wonder, how are they able to achieve so much for God? Well, the answer is simple. They use every single minute to serve him. That's the answer. Simple, but hard to do. Well, Scripture calls us to live in light of the eternity of time, to live in light of the mortality of men, to live in light of the urgency of the moment, and to live for the glory of God. If you want to live a life that has lasting value, you have to live for the glory of God. And this was the number one priority for Jonathan Edwards. His first resolution was this. He said, resolved that I will do whatsoever I think to be most to God's glory. You can see that on the screen probably in a minute. There it is. The, the first, there it is, yep. Resolved that I will do whatsoever I think to be most to God's glory. And you know, this resolution should be something that we all resolve to do. The Westminster Catechism says, man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. So whether it's in your married life or in your single life, when you're working or when you're resting, with your kids, without your kids, or if you're an empty nester, every aspect of your life must have one goal, and that goal must be to glorify God. Paul sums up his entire life in one sentence. He says, For to me, to live is Christ. Everything he did, everything he said, everything he thought, he did it for the glory of God. In 1 Corinthians 10.31, he says, Whether then you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. And just as Paul models for us, to live for the glory of God means that we have Christ as our priority in every aspect of our life. 
To live for the glory of God means to do the work of God that God has commanded us to do and that he has prepared for each one of us in our life. In Ephesians 2, verse 10, Paul writes, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. Steve Lawson said that works do not get us into heaven, but works follow us into heaven. God has prepared a series of works for us to do, each according to the gifts that he has given us, each according to the circumstances that he has put us in, according to the opportunities that he has set before us. God has prepared a series of works for us to do. And to live for the glory of God, we must carry out the works that God has prepared for us. When Jesus walked this earth, he said, we must work the works of him who sent me as long as it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. Jesus said here, we must work the works. We, when he says we, he's talking about all the believers, Every single person sitting in this room who is a believer, you are included in this statement, we, we must work. Then Jesus says, we must work. He's saying that if you're a believer, then you have no option. You have an obligation to work the works that God has prepared for you. You don't get to choose if this is a good idea or a bad idea, if this is necessary or unnecessary. You must do the work of God. This is, there is a divine necessity for us to do this. And then Jesus says, we must work the works of him who sent me. God did not give you your life to advance your ambitions. God gave you your life and all of your gifts to do the work of God. If you want to live for the glory of God, then you must work the works of God. And no one models this better for us than Jesus himself. In John chapter 17, verse 4, Jesus, just before he goes to the cross, he prays to God the Father and he says this, I glorified you, Father, on this earth, having finished the work which you have prepared and you have given me to do. Jesus lived for the glory of God the Father by doing the work that God had set him out to do. We glorify God by doing the works on this earth that God has prepared for each one of us to do. And every single time that we waste time, we forever forfeit that opportunity to glorify God that minute or that hour or that day or during our life. When we look at the life of Christ, we see that he was determined to complete the work that God had prepared for him, God the Father had prepared for him, even until his very last minute on the cross. In John chapter 19, verse 28, as Jesus hung on the cross, John wrote that Jesus, knowing that all things had already been finished, in order to finish the scripture, he said, I am thirsty. Even as Jesus is hanging on the cross, he was resolved to fulfill all the works that God had prepared for him. John says, in order to fulfill scripture, as Jesus is hanging on the cross, he says, I am thirsty. 
And so the people around him took a sponge full of sour wine and they brought it up to his face and to his mouth and they uh, wet his mouth with it. And when they did this, the prophecy from Psalm 69 was fulfilled that Christ's enemies would give him sour wine to drink. And then when this happened, John wrote in verse 30, Therefore, when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And bowing his head, he gave up his spirit. So even on the cross, while suffering excruciating pain, Christ's resolve was to fulfill the will of God and to do this to the glory of God, to glorify God. When we look at our lives, what will we say when we reach the end of our time? What will God say when we reach the end of our life and stand before him? God will look at the life that he gave me. God will look at the life that he gave you, and he will examine every single minute of that life. And it would be wise for us to look at our life right now from the perspective of the end and to make decisions right now based on what God will say when we stand before him. Looking at his own life from the vantage point of the end, Jonathan Edwards made a resolution to live in a way that would that he would not regret his life when he faced God. In resolution number 17, he wrote, Resolved that I will live so as I shall wish I had done when I come to die. Resolved that I will live so as I shall wish I had done when I come to die. Some of you are younger here. Some of you are older, but no matter what stage of life you're at, you have to remember that you will live a life that is either, a life that either has lasting impact or a life that is completely wasted. And if you're thinking about your life right now and you're saying to yourself, I've already wasted so much time. Well, we can find encouragement even in such a circumstance. In Philippians chapter 3, verses 13 and 14, Paul, who at one point was a blasphemer, who killed Christians, who said that his life before becoming a believer is rubbish, Paul says, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. No matter what lies behind us in our past, the exhortation from Scripture is for us to look forward and to live for Christ right now. And I want to finish with a point that is the foundation of pursuing a life that is eternal value. The reality is that you cannot live a life for God with an eternal value by simply pulling yourself up by your bootstraps or rolling up your sleeves. You cannot do this by your own power or by your own effort. In John 15, verse 5, Jesus said, I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit, 
And then he says, for apart from me, you can do nothing. Apart from Jesus, you can do nothing. If you're not a believer, you're wasting your life that God has given you. God is not pleased with your life if you're not a believer. Hebrews 11.6 says, without faith, it is impossible to please God. To live for God, you must first submit your life to God. As believers, we also must understand that we cannot please God by our own effort, by our own power. Jesus said, apart from me, you can do nothing. Well, understanding this reality, when Jonathan Edwards wrote his 70 resolutions, he began the 70 resolutions by declaring his dependence on God. And here is the preamble, so to say, to his resolutions. He says, being sensible that I am unable to do anything without God's help, I do humbly entreat him by his grace to enable me to keep these resolutions for Christ's sake. If we want to make our life in this world which passes into a life that lasts, we must resolve to live every minute with an eternal perspective by the power of God. Then we will face God and present to him a life of eternal value. And how glorious it will be to stand before him at that point and to say that we have lived for him. As C.T. Studd, a missionary in China, considered the end of his life, he wrote the famous poem, Only One Life Will Soon Be Passed. And he finished this poem with the following stanza. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. And when I'm dying, how happy I'll be if the lamp of my life has been burned out for thee. How happy I'll be if the lamp of my life has been burned out for thee. May that be our New Year's resolution for this year and for the rest of our life. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that we can call you Father. We thank you that we're your children and that you have given us this revelation of your word to understand this life, to understand that this life is bigger than just what is in front of us, that there is eternity. And Lord, thank you that you have provided a way for us to be with you for eternity through the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray that as we live in this world for you, as we seek to glorify you, help us to redeem every moment. Help us to seize every minute for your glory. Help us to live in such a way that our actions, our thoughts, our words, our interactions have lasting impact so that when we come and we stand before you, our life will not be just hay or stubble, but that it will be gold and precious stones. Lord God, use each one of us for your glory every minute of the life that you give us. I pray this, Lord, in the name of Jesus. Amen.